So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is for you. Buenos dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches. I can't speak any other languages, but I just wanted to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Why I've got your attention at the beginning of this podcast, I wanted to just say that thank you. I'm growing this. I really appreciate you listening, you tuning in, whether you're doing it in the gym right now, doing it in terms of listening to the podcast, no other thing. Whether you're on the train going to work, whether you're at work and you're slacking from work and you're listening to this podcast, wherever you are, just a huge thank you for tuning in and giving me your attention. If you're enjoying these episodes or if you appreciate any of the other content that I've been putting out, I would really appreciate it if you could give a rating and a review on this podcast. It's going to help with the exposure of it. It's going to help more people listen to these episodes and of course, hopefully break down that stigma that still surrounds mental health. Now, this interview is an interview with Alex Manzi from The Dreamer's Disease. And I've, pay, I've played you a short clip of it before, which you might have listened to. But this is the full interview, the hour-long interview. And to be honest with you, I think this is... I hate saying this, but I think this is one of my new favorite interviews that I've given. Because me and Alex, we've met each other a couple of times before this. And this was almost just like a sit-down the, the guard was off and it was me being as open, honest and vulnerable as I possibly could. Now, I'm always open, honest and vulnerable, but this was really the guard off. And Alex asked some really good questions and kind of got me to go into areas that I've never really explored before. And, you know, I shared some things that I've never really shared before as well. So I'm going to stop hyping it up. I'm going to just say Alex did an amazing job. The podcast is called The Dreamer's Disease. And let's dive in to the interview. So yeah, welcome. Well, it's good to be here, man. How's it really going? Good, good, yes. So this has been a long time coming. Yeah, it has. It's funny because we met at the beginning of the year, wasn't it? At like a networking event. Yeah. And very interestingly, we had the conversation of like, oh, what do you do as you do when you're kind of networking? And Paul was talking about fashion work that he does. And I was like, oh, well, I'll do social media stuff. And then we kind of somehow got onto the subject of like, okay, but what do you really do? (laughs) And, you know, I heard about everything that you're doing in a kind of mental health space. And then I was telling you about the podcast and Dreamers Disease. So yeah, since then we've kind of... Did you have your t-shirt on? Probably, yeah. I mean, I tried to wear it at most... Not this one, it would have been the uh, original version. I think that's always... It always breaks the ice. Yeah, because people go, oh, what's... hmm, Dreamers Disease, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to give people a heads up on what it is you do? And a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm sure we'll go deeper into the whole story. But um, nine years ago, I lost my dad to, to suicide. And it was really, really out of the blue. And before that... I always say everything was kind of normal, as normal as you would say. Yeah. Like normal family life and okay at school and liked football, played football, etc. And then that was a big, big turning point because it was just so out of the blue. Um, after that happened, I struggled to deal with it. But one of the things I did do was start a business. So I, I left the work that I'd only, I'd only just joined this new job. I was willing to work up the corporate ladder, get more experience, make more money. Mm. And then that happened and I went back and I just thought, screw this like it wasn't for me um so started a fashion business online fashion business and spent a lot of time learning sort of social media and digital marketing and got into the fashion industry and a couple of years after that just broke myself just because i think i was distracting myself yeah. from a lot of it and then again kind of was still heavily involved in the fashion space social media but now for the last probably year I've been raising a lot more awareness around, you know, suicide and, and mental health and mm. I'm more vocal about it now. And mm. and I think, you know, from what I see, the reaction you get to stuff is quite amazing, really, because there mm. are people out there who are really connecting with 
having those conversations or seeing someone being quite open about you know everything you had to deal with and mm. what you went through um, and I think the fact that you're also quite open about the distraction side of it in terms of you know the business that you built which you know still is a, a, a good business in some yeah. sense but it's just I guess fair to say it's probably not like your core passion anymore yeah I think it was it was, it was great I always wanted that freedom mm. and I think an online business brought that freedom it was doing it for the wrong reasons like doing it for the money and but yeah like, like you said you know the more vocal I've been about it the more um, awareness has come around it but also just more impact like people mm. messaging and, and I, I think back to nine years ago I wish I saw a video of someone yeah. saying it because you feel very alone and isolated and you feel like no one else is going through what you're going through yeah. if you see a guy on Instagram or something pop up yeah he's yes. talking about it you, you kind of go oh I get it and that's how I feel I'm not mm. the only one I'm not alone yeah exactly yeah that's kind of I get a lot of messages to some of the videos and you know the podcasts and stuff of people saying things like that like oh my god it's so good to hear these people's stories or your story or you know know that I'm not the only one who yeah. kind of deals with stuff and it's that's quite yeah it's reassuring for me that you know there, there are people who are being you know connected or you know um, inspired by it but also the fact that it's having an, a, a kind of you know an impact how big or small I don't know but mm. on people and I think for you that's really powerful particularly around raising that awareness because I know there is a big big problem with uh, male suicide isn't there mm. in I don't you'll probably know the stats better yes than me. I mean it was announced recently that it's the lowest it's been since 1983 or something like that but it's still the biggest killer of men under the age of 50 yeah um it's three times you're three times more likely to die by suicide if you're a man than a woman wow um but as well you know I do a lot of campaigning around male suicide but we have to be aware of women because women's increasing and mm. I think as soon as you start focusing on just one gender um you have to kind of think of it as a whole so that's what mm. I'm trying to do more of now is talk about suicide and mental health as a whole rather than just male specific but yeah I mean like the scariest way that I put it is like me and you the biggest threat to our lives right now are ourselves mm nothing else just us we're the we're the biggest threat to our own lives yeah with that statistic and that's scary scary and why do you think that is i just there's so many factors but i just think one society like we're still very hush hush around mental health and i say suicides you know the s word that no one wants to talk about still but it's at a point now where you do need to start talking about it because you know it's they're in black and white in front of you the digits, you know, these people that are ending their own lives. It's not like a small minority of people that are struggling with it. It's like mm. the, the majority of people are struggling with it. I think one, it's people not talking about it. Two, men have a very undefined goal of what it takes to be a man nowadays. So like my granddad, 93, mm. stiff upper lip, yeah. never really seen him cry at all. Mm. Like he lost my dad, who was his only child in the March. And then my nan died in the April. So he lost mm, like wow. his only child and his wife of over 50 years in a month didn't cry one bit and he's and it, wow. but that's just his that's his conditioning to how he was brought up and I think that generation were taught to be men like that whereas my dad's generation was, was a little bit more blurred yeah and then our generation's a little bit more blurred as well and yeah. I think that whole role of what it takes to be a man now is is very blurred yeah. and I think a lot of men struggle with that and also find that I guess people you know with social media are seeing like this idealistic version mm. of everyone's life 
and there's that constant comparison in the back of your mind and that voice inside your head that kind of is telling you you're not good enough because you, you're not like that person yeah we don't have that thing that that person has yeah and that plays into it a lot and it's, it's quite scary when you look at the numbers like you know would you say it was a third of all people guys under the age of yeah so it's the biggest killer man under the age of 50 and you're three times more likely to die by suicide than women and yeah yeah it's like that false reality of what happiness Mm. and success is and i think as men like we're very drawn to success yeah and now like like you say you're scrolling for instagram you're seeing your friend with a lamborghini that he's got in finance and you're like oh my you know i'm not as successful as him yeah um so I think social media does make it harder. Yeah. But I think as well, it's just, like I say, you know, my granddad's role was very clear. You know, you, you go to war and, you know, and some of the things he went through at war, a lot of people wouldn't be able to emotionally deal with now. Exactly. You come home, you don't get any counseling, you just you just deal with it. Mm. But there's also a clear role in the house. Like, you know, my nan stayed at home. She brought up my dad. She did the cleaning. She did the cooking. And, mm. and then funny story is, is like my dad was the same. My mum did all the cleaning, the cooking. She brought me and my brother up and it was that clear goal. So then when I met my now wife, she cooked me dinner once. I left the plate on the floor and I walked out and she went, pick the plate up and take it out <laughs> and wash it up. And I was like, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? And I think, and then uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. I think, and then men start questioning themselves as a man if they're mm. like doing the cooking, the cleaning, and yeah. you know, staying at home. And I think it's just like you talk all about it a lot, self awareness. Yeah. I think just self being self aware enough to know this is what I define as a man, and this is what feels good to me, rather than like you say, looking on yeah. Instagram. And so, what, what then do you think are the differences between that idealistic version of what a man? or what we believe or are told or society dictates men should be versus what you think a man is or should be? Yeah, I think, again, I think it's all self-awareness. You know, a lot of, the issue is a lot of people don't deal with their emotions. And I've got this strong thing now about, I see a lot of videos going around about it's okay to cry and Mm. men should cry, which I completely agree with. But at the same time, some men don't cry. It's just like, that's their way of conditioning. And then what you're getting now is, is men judging themselves because they can't get emotional because yeah. that's the now way of dealing with it and talking about it. And like, I think as a man, you have to be self-aware enough to know, oh, this works for me. Like, rather than, again, looking at someone else and saying, you know, they're more emotional, they talk to their wife about it, whereas I don't feel like I can. I want to go to the gym and lift mm. weights. And I think it's all about self-awareness and realizing what's the way you deal with it for your yeah. conditioning. Um but I think for me, what, what makes a man is someone who's, like you say, self-aware, compassionate. You know, I think, I think compassion is something that's very overlooked in terms of how successful, successful it makes someone. Yeah. Um, but again, I think it's all about, up to, it's up to the individual to define what it takes to be a man. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head where it's like knowing what it is that works for you. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys maybe will go to the gym and push big weights, but they don't know the reason they're doing it they yeah, think yeah, they're yeah. doing it for themselves for physique wise they don't actually know that they're doing it for a mental capacity as well yeah. and it's, it's recognising that and knowing that that is also why you're doing it has mm. a massive powerful impact on yeah, you yeah and I think again it's like if you're a man who looks at someone lifting weights and you think that's going to make me more of a man going to the gym and lifting weights and you do it and it doesn't feel right like mm. and don't judge yourself if that's yeah. the case yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just self-awareness is so overlooked yeah 100% it's, yeah. it's, it's it, I think again I always use the scary as like my <laughs> go-to word but it is scary when you think there's a lot of people who aren't 
aware about their actions there and, and you know i've been there you've been there you know mm. we've we've been there and it's a scary place to think that there's still so many people out there who aren't able to i guess understand how to acknowledge that part of themselves mm. and it's like you know I guess again that's probably why we do what we do right is try and open up those conversations yeah and i think you've hit the nail on the head is is this distractions like yeah majority of men aren't dealing with it they're burying it and then mm. distracting with i always say like short-term pleasures which is what i did yeah so like when dad took his life i went clubbing like six days after and put on that yeah. brave mask and wow. guys from college at the time came up to me and they obviously knew and they were like not my close friends but they were like you know what are you what are you doing here yeah and i'm like you know it's fine it's like yeah, it's a good time done. i'm just gonna go just drinking have, this whole bottle of yeah, whiskey <laughs> like, i'm just gonna yeah. have a good night tonight and then um you know, like I say, the business was great, but it was just, again, a massive distraction. Yeah. Just, I'm going to leave my head in this laptop, chase money. Like, I need success. I need something yeah. to distract myself from this grief. And then it slowly comes back. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what a lot of men do, is they just distract themselves. Yeah. So talk me through a bit about that time nine years ago when, you know, your dad did, you know, commit suicide. What was the kind of... A, where and how did you find out? And then what was your kind of initial, you know, reaction? And how did how did you deal with that? Yeah, so it kind of started about six months before he took his life. So again, I always say my dad had everything on paper. Like he was a full-time engineer, you know, good job. He had a part-time physiotherapy business. He had a psychology degree. He ran once, if not twice a day. He was like mm. physically, like very good um, fitness. He was um, a really good runner as well. And, you know, my mum, me and my brother, friends, etc. And um, was always with it. You know, it was, it was your dad. You don't really see any, any weakness in them. He was quite sensitive sometimes, but, you know, not anything that you would imagine. And then saw him one day and I always explain it like his um, eyes were very distant. And he was saying things completely out of behavior, mm. like saying things like, you know where the money is. And this was just the next day. Like he yeah. seemed all right the day before. And then this was the next day and you don't think anything of it. And then he went to the doctors um, and sort of said, you know, I'm feeling this way. And the doctor gave him sort of antidepressants. Um, and my dad was very holistic. Mm. He like meditated and, you know, he if you had a headache, he'd say, Paul, like, don't take a paracetamol, drink some more water yeah, or like yeah. go for a walk. And that was just him. So now all of a sudden he's taking these antidepressants. He goes back a couple of days later, says it's not working. Doctor's like, double your dose. And then um, sort of about seven to 10 days, I can't remember the exact, but it was quick. From that change in behavior, he attempted suicide for the first time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what, what kind of happened is he called up an ambulance and said, I feel very suicidal. The ambulance took him into A&E and then left him in oh, A&E. Yeah. So we get a call saying he's been taken to A&E. We'd ringing him, can't get through to him, can't get through to him. And what he did is he kind of walked out of A&E and sort of walked in front of a van. Oh, um, and like that was a massive shock because one, we didn't understand it. Like we didn't believe that he would have done it. Mm. And then he pulled through that physically. I don't know how he pulled through that physically. Wow. He got like, transferred to a hospital in Romford, which was about sort of half hour away and then operated on like brain bleed and mm. was in a coma for a couple of days and we're still like is he going to survive and then all of a sudden we walk in he's sitting upright mm. and we're like 
you know, wow, and we ask him the question and he says, no, 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 I would never have done that. I would never have attempted. Mm. It was the medication. He blamed it on the medication. Um, long story short, he came out of hospital. The day he came back to the house, I remember it, it was like, dad's home, everything's back to normal. We've got through this. And then he just got worse. Yeah. Um, and then he ended up sectioning himself and he was in a mental health unit for on and off probably about two months um and then he was released and again released wasn't the same dad but was a lot better come and watch me play football one day and i yeah. was like dad's back like, i'm playing football dad's on the sideline i never thought this would happen mm. and then he got worse and then um we got him into the mental health unit on the friday he got released on the monday got released on a physical assessment not a mental assessment in yeah. a mental health unit and yeah. then um i saw him on the monday night and said to myself he needs to go back in but i was just like i didn't know what else to do and then he died on the tuesday so he took wow. his life the next day um and yeah kind of when it happened it was just again you didn't believe it was going to happen but then when like when you find out you know especially that time of him in a unit and stuff you start to realize it a little bit more mm. i think if he would have died the first time it'd have been harder to deal with because it was that quick. Yeah. I didn't experience the mental health, you know, I didn't experience dad being depressed and dad yeah. saying that he wanted to end his life. That was just him feeling sad and then attempting very quickly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then, then when it kind of happened, it was just how horrible for everyone. But then the worst thing was after the funeral, when all of the support dries up mm. and you're back to living your life normally. And that was the hard thing. Cause it was like, what do I do? Like, yeah. how do I deal with it? And how, before the funeral and you know during that period of you know the van incident and you know right up until the fatal day what what was your how were you dealing with it all what was your kind of emotional state yeah that's a good question i mean it was it was hard because i always i've always been the same i've always wanted to control something that's out of my control mm. so i was always trying to fix it i was always like trying to fix him and i think that must have been hard for him when your son is trying to fix you. And I don't think he accepted that well. Um, it was hard being in the mental health unit. Like we went, we went and saw him every day. We spent Christmas in the mental health unit. And wow. just, again, just, I think now I'm a dad. If I was in his situation, I probably would write myself off as well because mm. it's not a nice place to be. And he's, he was the guy in the corner doing the crosswords, keeping himself to himself. But, you know, he's you know sleeping next to a guy who's got extreme schizophrenia and was you know hard to deal with and he got removed from the unit because he was that hard um and yeah it was it was a horrible thing but i think again i just distracted myself from it it's just like just keep busy with my work which i was doing mm. at the time going to see him after work travel to see him after work um and yeah just 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 distract like don't don't think that it's happening and yeah and yeah, it wasn't easy. Did you did your role kind of change within your family as well at that point? Did you kind of feel like you needed to be more, I don't know, obviously supportive for your mum and, you know, those kind of mm. things. Was there kind of like a shift in your mindset in terms of like how you saw yourself in the household as a kind of figure? Yeah, I think because I've always been like, so it's me and my brother. My brother's two years older than me, my mum, my dad. And my dad was always in control, not manipulating control but it yeah. was always my dad's idea where we go on holiday it was always my yeah. dad's idea what we do at the weekend and yeah. um my mum was just 
you know, all about me and my brother and a happy, a happy family. Um, and she had her own struggles. Um, but it was almost, yeah, surprising because dad was always the kind of guy who kept the whole family together in a way from an outside perspective. Mm. Um, so then when he was the one struggling, it kind of was a big missing piece. Mm. And I don't know whether we just naturally changed our dynamic, but I think it brought us, it definitely brought us all closer together. Yeah. Um, but the hard thing was, is obviously my nan and granddad, you know, they're a lot older and yeah. my nan was struggling with, she was struggling with cancer at the time and the way they understood it was very different to the way we understood it. You know, like my granddad's just like, just snap out of it. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, that's, that was his approach. And yeah. then, you know, we see it in a different way. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he could just go up and down that like one day he'd be fine and then uh, fine. The next day, you know, he'd just be, you know, bad again. And yeah. just, you could never understand how he was going to be. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good question. I've never really thought of it that way, but I think it definitely brought us together. Yeah. And and how was your, you know, the rest of your kind of, you know, your brother and your mum, you know, how were they dealing with, were they kind of in a similar vein to you, you know, distracting themselves or were they more kind of, you know, emotional about it or more, mm. you know, left broken or? Yeah, I mean, I go into it a little bit in the book and I've never been that vocal about it, but um, so my mum and my brother and me, we all dealt with it very differently. Mm. Like we're a close family, but at the same time for me and I think it was the same with them is I didn't want to drop anything on them mm. so like when that was all happening and then after dad died it's like you're close but you're all dealing with it in your own way yeah so my brother deals with it very differently my brother's like I say now he's just completely resilient he's like he'll just get on with it mm. um, but you know he does struggle still but he's more of like get on with it I'm a little bit more emotional mm. I'll talk more about it I'll overthink everything um, and then my mum, she had struggles in the past and, you know, she was all about me and my brother and she still is. And, um, she, she struggled with, with alcoholism and, um, when dad died, she stopped drinking for a while, but then afterwards kind of, you know, got, you know, drunk more. And I yeah. think again, it was just, I never understood that at the time. And she got to a, a you know, a bad place, um, but you know she hasn't drunk for sort of six and a half years now wow. and the way she explains it to me is it's like it's numbing the pain yeah like comfort in yeah it was numbing the pain originally of like things she had to deal with and then after dad died it's like numbing the pain of that and then it's just that scary loop and yeah. um yeah she's so again it's like you all go different ways and you'll deal with it different ways even if you're a close family yeah and I don't think I never wanted to burden them I never wanted to be like mum I'm struggling because I could see she was struggling I didn't want to be like Steve I'm struggling because yeah. I could see he was struggling so then you end up just sort of trying to deal with it on your own which yeah. isn't the right way of doing it did, did you have any other kind of support network at the time like group of friends or a yeah no, like I think that's the thing like you have you. I had all that there but I just couldn't talk to them mm. I had all my mates and um what do you think was stopping you? That perception of just like who I was and ego. Just yeah. a great story of that is um, we went, went to Malia. Yeah. It's like this was May, no, May or June or July. Dad died in the March. It's like three months after he died. And there's like, I don't know, 15 of us in Malia. Mm. First night, fish bowls, just drinking. 
And the first bar we were in, one of my dad's funeral songs come on because my dad had an upbeat, the Fratelli's Chelsea Dagger. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and it come on in a bar. A couple of my mates like, check me. And I was just like, and I just burst into tears, yeah. run out of this bar. I had like a panic attack. It's the first ever panic attack I've ever had. Yeah. But the funny story is, is like a few guys came out. And one of them was like, you're having a panic attack. Slow your breathing down. I have panic attacks. Mm. And again, looking back on that, I never ever knew that. One of my other friends or two of my other friends were like, look, go home, go to the hotel. We'll come with you right tonight off. We'll go again tomorrow. And I just wiped the tears, got on with it, went out. Next morning, like nothing was ever mentioned and nothing yeah. was ever mentioned until probably I messaged my mate about six months ago when I was writing about it. Wow. And I think that's the whole issue. Yeah. Is it's like, I felt weak sharing it. And the bad thing was, is I never asked my mate about his panic attacks either. <laughs> So there he was telling me he has them. But the next day you go back to just bantering and yeah. getting drunk. And and I think looking back, I wish I did talk to my mates, but at the time I didn't think that mm. I could. And has that relationship changed now with your yeah. mates? Are you a lot more open? and Yeah, because they see it all now. And at first I think they're probably thinking, what's he doing? But now yeah. I, f I feel like hopefully they know they can talk to me. Yeah, um, I know I can talk to them. But for me, it was like I tried a counsellor. I tried a psychologist, I think. Um, I tried various different things um, but there was just one lady that helped me massively kind of like two years after Dad died um, she was the only one who got me to open up completely and, and as soon as I did that kind of a lot changed after that yeah and what were the kind of techniques or you know what was it that she did that kind of helped you she was weird like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I explained it as this I think what helps me now understand it is one so this quick story of it is I had back problems which I think was a lot of it to do with mm. the mental health stuff and then um, I had like acupuncture chiropractor everything my girlfriend at the time now my wife she said you should go get see this lady she's a masseuse she takes donations she's like just put a tenner in the pot she's fine um, she's really weird she knows more about you than you know about yourself mm. and for some reason at 21 I'm drawn to that and then I went to see her I'm in this I walk in this little bungalow this little room they've got mass they've got oils and stuff this like four foot five sort of 65 year old woman walks in yeah it's wow music on and I'm like what the hell am I doing um and then yeah kind of the first session had a massage second session I think she just said like why are you here I said I'm here for my back she said why are you really here and I just said like my dad killed himself I don't know how to deal with it and I just cried mm. and she didn't do anything in particular. Mm. All she did was one, listen, two, she asked the right questions and she made it like it's safe. Um, and then three, after that is again, it was just guiding me. She didn't, she wasn't trying to change me. She was just like, I think you need to read this book. I'd read the book. It wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> I'd give it back to her about three months later. She'd give me back the book. I'd read it and it would make 100% sense. Wow. Yeah. And she just kind of like guided me to discover it for myself rather than like tell me what to do. Yeah. And the funny thing was that she, she had like a week in illicit therapy course and that was it. Really? She's just been through loads. She understands more than, than kind of anyone. And I think as well, the other thing that helped, as I realized this the other day, is I went there for my back yeah like sometimes as men like if we go to a counsellor we're waiting for them to answer all of our problems yeah like with her I just went there because I had a back problem and I was a bit intrigued as to who she was but I didn't go there thinking she needs to fix me because it's like yeah I'm screwed 
Um, so I think that helped as well. Mm-hmm. There was like no expectations with it. Do you still see yeah. her now? Not as much. Yeah. So like I'll see her every probably couple of months. Yeah. But every time I do come out there, you feel a lot better. Yeah. And she helped my mum. She was she was the person. Again, my mum tried everything. She, she wanted to stop drinking drastically, but she just couldn't. Um, she tried everything, like literally everything. And then and the same lady to help my mum because again, she never spoke about the drink she never spoke about my dad's suicide she spoke about the deeper stuff yeah like the things that are actually to the core reasons of why i was bottling up and the core reasons of why dad took his life and the core reasons of why i was depressed same with my mum. like what were the core reasons why she was drinking rather than talking directly about the problem mm. like the actual core reason behind yeah. it it's just amazing honestly if i could have like one of her in every county i think like <laughs> it's yeah. just massive oh wow that sounds incredible I have to go and find her as well. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do some like videos of her, man. She's, you should. I think she's in her 70s now, but yeah. she's... Withdraw some of her uh, knowledge and experience. But she's very spiritual. So mm. a lot of people aren't really attracted to that. But I think for some reason, again, at 21, I was very drawn to the whole spiritual side of it. Yeah, I guess it was that, that place of feeling maybe a bit lost and trying to have that bit of going through that self-discovery kind yeah. of phase, isn't it? And, and she explained it to me the other day. Yeah. She said, the reason why you was drawn to it is because you wanted to know what happened to your dad afterwards. Mm. Yeah. like it was a quick end so she was kind of like you might have been drawn to spirituality in a way because you wanted to know where he'd yeah. gone now I still see it from a practical point of view like something she says I'm like mm. but the majority of it I do sort of practice yeah. and I think there's this huge myth around spirituality as well like a lot of people think it's you, you're religious or yeah, yeah. any of that but it's just about you, you said it in your um, in your talk at my event yeah. It's about like the core. Yeah, having that solid core. Yeah. My egg metaphor. Yeah. I use that quite a lot, you know, I realised. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. It's um it's one someone actually I said it recited it to someone the other day. Who was it? I can't remember. And they said that um <clears throat> I should get it on a t shirt. Yeah. Live your life like a boiled egg. <laughs> because the, <laughs> I'd ask some questions. Yeah. Up, yeah. And then have the explanation style. on the back. Yeah. Because the I know for some people who who have listened to the podcast before, I have said it on here. But essentially, it's me explaining how you know we live our lives in this kind of exterior world, and we think that all of these things that we have in our life are what keep us together, and you know, like our cars and our you know our clothes and all these kind of materialistic things and this and our friends and, and everything that's kind of in that outside world and it's kind of I explain it as being a bit like an egg it's like an egg's got the hard shell which keeps it together but if you whack it with a spoon the whole thing just collapses and all the insides go everywhere and everything whereas if you actually focus internally on you and you know making yourself as best as you can possibly be you you know then think of it like a boiled egg you know if you then hit that bit of shell with the spoon just that little bit might break away or crack or whatever but the the inside remains solid and it's kind of using that metaphor as a way to kind of explain yeah. it to people and, and it makes people hungry as well it right? does yeah <laughs> starving for scrambled but no, that was my issue as well is like i just dealt with it by chasing the materialistic thing yeah yeah and that's the thing like you know you go through that process of doing that and it's you know i think everyone maybe experiences it in various different ways like i've definitely done it in terms of like holidays or you know using holiday as an escape mm. rather than like going to just yeah. chill and enjoy myself like using that as an escape or you know just going out a lot and going to gigs or like you know running events and having that buzz of energy to kind of be that adrenaline yeah, kick yeah. that I felt like I didn't have and stuff like that and it's 
yeah it's a bit wild it's, you get yeah. lost in it so easily I think you you know especially now with social media the, the guys who will post like a hundred times in one week when they're on holiday and then they'll go quiet for like <laughs> six months six months and then they're back on it again but I, I, I mean that was my biggest downfall is just chasing you know status I think again men that's, in particular you know it's all about status mm. like, we think that the car we drive the house we have the job role we've got, the relationship we're in defines who we are as men. Yeah. But like you're saying, in reality, if that doesn't fit well with who we are, there's a massive... Mm. Like, it's the same with me. It was, it was more recent. It was probably about a year and a half ago. And probably a year ago. I, um... Actually, it's probably about two years ago. I was sitting in... I was sitting in my house. So I was renting this house. Sort of five bed. Mm. Rent was colossal not colossal but it was way more than I could afford yeah um was sort of lying well, not lying but just kind of oblivious wasn't telling Amy like my we weren't married then but I was just kind of like yeah you know we'll go out I can afford it I can afford it I can afford it we had like a not an amazing car but before that I had a car on finance that mm. all my mates thought was cool but I was paying money that I couldn't afford for it I had clothes from like several row that like you know again it's all about status and then I sat there one day and I just thought, I've got nothing. Like, mm. especially when I became a dad. And there was something that happened to my brother recently, like a, a big accident that was completely out of the blue again. And that was what made me realize that if anything happens to me, I leave my kids and my wife with nothing because mm. it's all rented. It's all makes me look more successful than I actually am. Yeah. And now we've stripped it all the way back. And I feel way more happier driving my granddad's green Ford Fiesta yeah. and living in you know a, a, a free bed house but you know we're not renting it yeah and i feel far more happier knowing that i've got you know that there rather than like renting it all and yeah from the outside looking like i'm happy but in the inside thinking i'm actually not yeah. happy at all do you know what i on that i haven't actually uh told this to anyone yet but i wrote something the other day on my phone and i was because i was obviously thinking about this conversation that we we were going to have today and i remember at the talk that you you wrote a letter to your dad mm. of you know things i think you wish you'd said or yeah. you wish you could say to him or something like that and it just got me thinking like what what do i wish i could say or explain or understand um about myself back when i was in a really bad way and i won't recite it now because i'm going to use it for something else but essentially the picture i built up was that I look happy on the outside, but on the inside I was falling apart. Yeah. And it's exactly like what you just said on the outside in, you know, having all these things and looking like you're living this great life, but mm. actually on the inside you're just in absolute pieces. I think a great example of that for me personally is Avicii, like yeah. the DJ. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I grew up wanting to be a DJ like most people yeah. do. And honestly, from the outside in, like how perfect was his life? Yeah. Like he could literally... You know, go to any club, get paid six figures probably to play mm. some music and, and travel you know, the world, travel and the world it, yeah. gig and, you know, probably, you know, any relationship that he wanted he could have and anything that he wanted he could have. But again, like inside just tells a completely different story. Yeah. And there's so many suicides like that now. You know, there's so many out there. Mm. That, again, from the outside in, you're looking at them like Kate Spade, fashion designer. Mm. A lot of girls would dream of like her life. But she's obviously not happy and... Yeah. It's scary again, like you say. We should. It's this false reality of what happiness is that we're taught from a young age. Yeah, like achievement, success is what makes you happy. Mm. But when really it's, you know, success for me is when you are happy. Yeah, 
So if you could flip things then and you could um, t- teach something in schools about happiness mm. and well-being and, you know, taking care of your mental health, what, what would you, you know, lay down as like the ground rules or the, you know, curriculum yeah. or however? I think it's, it's more simple than people think. It's, it's again, one in schools in particular, like dealing with worry and dealing with stress, like you're not taught any of that. So like when GCSEs come, everyone's sort of struggling and, you know, how do I deal with this stress and how do I deal with this worry? And Mm. none of that's actually taught. Um, I think just, you know, more about more openness as well. So again, school is still a very closed off place. Yeah. I think if the teachers, someone was telling me earlier, actually, where, you know, I think her daughter was struggling at GCSEs. She went, the person said, you need to be referred to CAMS, which is like the mental health kids. And then six months later, I had a letter saying you're not you're not um, you know suitable for our program or whatever they call it. And she wasn't like her mum was like she was just stressed about her exams. Yeah, yeah. But instead of her having this referral, if her teacher stood up in class and said, "Look, I know how you're all feeling. I've been there. You know, I know you're all, you're all worried. You know, if you're stressed, this is what you should start doing." Mm. It's still very you know teachers don't not every teacher, but most teachers don't have that open environment in the in in school. So I think it's just, again, the whole stigma that surrounds mental health. If teachers are more open, then kids may be more open as well. Yeah. Um, but just having like lessons on it. Like I did a video on it where it was like, why are schools still fixating on academic intelligence and not emotional intelligence? Yeah. Because it's like, what's a grade on a piece of paper when actually you're stressed, yeah. you're worried, you don't want to live anymore. Yeah. And I've got this thing of that I always say is like, when you look at the school curriculums, like I started secondary school in 1999, which is nearly 20 years ago, which is quite scary in itself. Um, How old are you? 30. Ah. So um, that curriculum, when I going to drop like a 51 or something. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> no, when, um, so like the way I see it is like, when you see that curriculum that I started secondary school, what it was teaching kids and what it was about and how it was set up to current day, it hasn't actually changed that no. much. Whereas how much has the world changed yeah. in that 20 year period? And it hasn't changed since like 100 years. Like, well, yeah, and, and all the time before that. So it's like, that's what I think is mad is that there isn't a kind of shift in dynamic on how kids are being taught or what they're being taught or, you know, like you said, you know, emotional intelligence versus, you know, academic intelligence yeah. and stuff like that. And there's a, a foundation that I do a lot of work with um, called the Sure Mind Foundation. And they're all about that. And they yeah. did a um, petition, I think a year ago. They got over 100,000 signatures to make mental health compulsory in schools. It was recently announced that it's going to be compulsory by 2020. So by 2020, every school has to make mental health a compulsory. Yeah. But when you look deeper into the report, they, they were fighting for like a standalone subject that you get taught regularly. Mm. I don't know the exact, but they're not as happy as yeah. they made it out. It'd probably be more like a box ticking exercise. Yeah, so you've got like PHSE where you learn that and it's probably going to be a section of that. I don't, I don't know, 100%. Um, but it needs to be compulsory. It needs to be a standalone subject because yeah. it's so important. And especially, you know, I talk about the mouse suicide statistics. Like, you know, suicide's the biggest killer of young people. Yeah. And again, it's like, you know, that's that's more scary for me now being a dad is that my kids lives are at risk from this yeah. and they aren't being taught how to deal with it in mm. schools well, luckily they've got a dad who who can educate Hopefully. them on it he'd like to think <laughs> so but yeah i mean that's scary because that's the whole society and stigma 
it's not going to change quickly. It's mm. going to change when the next generation yeah. start talking. There was a quote that says, um, let's be the generation that talks so much about mental health that the next generation doesn't suffer from the stigma. Yeah. And it's like yeah. people say that this talking doesn't solve anything, but what it is actually doing is it's making a safer environment for the next generation. Yeah. But by the way it's looking is that next generation may still struggle. It'll be the generation after that. that. And we don't want to keep pushing it back. Mm. Um, Needs to be so some yeah. actions that are in place to kind of have that effect sooner rather than later, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and they say as well, I think you're more likely to um, suffer with mental illness up to the age of, I think, 14. Mm. So that wow. that's the perfect age. From zero to 14, that's when they should be being taught how to deal with it. Yeah. Because after that... Yeah, you know it's it's more of a struggle yeah again it, I guess it comes down to the self-awareness of it all isn't it and it's like you know I had that moment myself of like actually the admitting and the recognition of actually I'm not quite myself and yeah. I am suffering and, you know you had that moment of I guess realising actually when was that moment for you of realising that you were living a life of distractions rather than dealing with yeah, what I you were going through I went to the doctors not long after dad and I said you know I'm always tired like I, I sleep like 10 hours a day but I wake up and I'm tired and he was like you're depressed I want mm. to put you on some antidepressants and I, was, I ran away from that because mm. I didn't want to be labelled as depressed now for me that worked because um, my biggest fear is that I'll end up like my dad and at the time it was very high then and I thought if they're now labelling me as depressed and giving me antidepressants I'm exactly in the same place as my dad was mm. so I ran away from that diagnosis and tried to fix it myself which helped me but a lot of people do like that diagnosis um, so I'm not judging if, if someone sort of takes that but for me it was like after that I found that I was just existing Yeah, I think a lot of people suffer with that before you know it it's like what am I actually doing I'm literally just existing and just day by day not really enjoying it mm. but just getting up and doing the same stuff the same stuff and I think that was the biggest realisation a couple of years later I didn't hit the goals that I'd set myself to be a millionaire by like 19 yeah. or whatever yeah. and I'm like I'm just I'm just doing the same stuff every day and I just wasn't happy and I think that was more of the realisation mm. I think like you say a lot of people it comes too late yeah. when they retire or something it's just yeah because that's when they feel like they've got the freedom to do what they want rather than I guess recognising you have the power to do what you want you know whenever you want you mm. know you don't have to live a life dictated by how other people tell you you should live your life yeah, in a way yeah um, yeah this is it's food for thought when you start like yeah, really I mean, thinking about stuff like that isn't it the thing is um, that I always say is some that what that's what made me leave my job because my dad was very much nine to five save up so my dad saved for an early retirement my dad wanted to retire at 50 yeah and he killed himself five years before that wow yeah. and I think my dad was working and working and working and working he wanted to retire at 50 so then he could start enjoying his life he killed himself sort of five years before that mm -hmm. moment and I think that was a wake-up call for me so it's like why would you wait for retirement before you before you can start being happy yeah um, but again, I think, like you say, a lot of people, you know, it's never too late anyway. You know, at 45, he could have probably, you know, changed his life around. Yeah. Um, yeah, easily, of course. But, you know, a lot of people do leave it too late and they don't have that self-awareness or they don't make any change Yeah. before. So for you, in the, in the past year or so that you've been kind of really focusing more on the, you know, mental health and suicide kind of uh, messaging and kind mm. of making more and more content, what... What's the kind of biggest 
um, reactions and, and kind of response that you've got to all of that work? Um, a lot, but I think the main one is just the amount of people saying that they don't feel as alone anymore. Mm. And I, I'm still very humble and I don't think I'll ever whenever someone compliments me I've always been like this I just hit it for a home run and I just be like yeah whatever we'll get on with it and yeah. I'm, I'm terrible at taking compliments but when people say you know this video has like helped me more than anything's ever helped me or um, you know people saying so I did a, a road trip the other week and in Liverpool this woman came up to me with like a Liverpool goodie bag yeah. and it had like a Liverpool mug she knows obviously I support Liverpool a Liverpool keyring but and it was a letter like a card and she wrote about it, just like completely transforming her life and, and you don't realise that when you're just doing it Yeah. but I think for me it's like one people feel less alone when they hear someone talk about it and I think that would have helped me massively and I think that would have helped my dad because yeah. my dad suffered in silence because he felt like he couldn't talk to anyone but when really like if someone maybe spoke first he might have felt okay to open up yeah and that's what i feel now with a lot of my talks is and again with men a great example of that is my first talk i did on it was in america in atlanta it was like 200 men at this sort of men's style like business conference and i was there the first day networked and sort of said oh yeah i'm speaking on the last day no one really said a thing did my talk went really really deep with it explained my dad's suicide my depression and I had then guys coming up that I'd had a beer with the night before, like mm. crying and just really? opening up wow. everything to me. And was like, I literally thought you was talking directly to me. And then it's almost one, one person talks. It gives someone, not the permission, that's the wrong word, but it makes someone then talk too. Yeah. And I think that's what's more powerful. Is it's like, I'm not doing anything in particular, but when I'm vulnerable, it will make someone else be okay to be vulnerable as well. Yeah. And I think that's why people talking is so important. Yeah. And is, is that, I guess, why, you know, when you do make videos, it, you, you tend to do, the, and I started to do it a lot more, is have that little bit of a personal experience side to it. So mm. people can have that bit of, um, they can relate to it a bit more and they can, it kind of resonates with them. Mm. And they can have that moment of, oh wow he he feels exactly like how I feel or felt or you know whatever it is yeah and I think yeah it's exactly that and I think if like I'm not I'd say I'm quite relatable to some people like I'm not like for me whenever I was looking for help for suicide back then it was always like some 50 year old Mm. counsellor that I could never relate to yeah I think the reason I could relate to Anne is she was a 65 year old woman (laughs) She was just laid back, understanding, but she, she, I remember the first time she did it, she swore. And I was like, never expected this because sometimes when it's quite a formal format, like yeah. I just didn't, I just, it didn't go down well with me. Yeah. But she was just laid back and she was just more open. Mm. And I think she was open before I opened up. I think she probably shared one or two things. And again, I think when you're trained as a counselor, she wasn't trained, but when you're trained as a counselor, you've got them boundaries that you yeah, have to abide by. Where she had no no person to, to you know listen to, she was yeah. just doing what she thought was best, and I think that's the same with me. I've got no boundaries. I would just, I've got more boundaries now, but I mean, I would just be as open and vulnerable as I possibly can be. And if that helps someone, it helps someone. If it doesn't help someone, then you know it doesn't. Yeah. And 
think that's the main thing just being open yeah and I feel like, like I think you, you said it earlier when it opens the gateway for other people to start having the conversations and you know part of the reason for me starting this podcast and you know the kind of journey I've gone on is because I couldn't find someone that I could almost relate to in yeah. in that way and have a figure that I could look to who I could be like oh they kind of look and sound a bit like me similar kind of not exactly. literally but I mean similar kind of age generationally yeah. um you know can tell kind of into the same sort of things it was always kind of like I said older guys or American yeah, you know yeah. you know people or and it wasn't really like something or somewhere where I could be like actually you know you know I'm not posh or really well spoken or like I'm just a normal kind of person and yeah. it's just like having someone where you feel like you can relate to them in some way mm. and it's like knowing that I didn't have that when I was going through everything and wishing that I did it's just like in for you and it's the same as having that that place where someone can go okay I can relate to him and yeah. you know it's, I think like with you as well like you know because you've got the kind of fashion background and for anyone who hasn't seen Paul or is watching the video he's got the most well-groomed hair you've ever seen and it's like I think it's a wig <laughs> I think seeing someone who casual though like I'm, I'm, everyone sees some of the photos from the fashion stuff and they're like do you always wear suits like, I work from home like, I yeah. literally just track my slippers <laughs> yeah but like I think it's like seeing someone who is kind of like well-groomed and you yeah. know you always associate the kind of and again it's I guess a, a media thing like the mental health yeah, spaces exactly. people who are like a mess or like no exactly you know look you and know, that's the thing I'm trying to like break down as well is because again there's this every every video that surrounds mental health is normally quite it doesn't make you positive yeah it's a bit more like I'll watch and, it and I'm just like you know I feel worse off yeah. and I've been to a couple of mental health events as well and I walk out of them and I'm like I feel worse than when I walked in yeah, wow. and because it's such a heavy subject and I'm not saying that's wrong like every video every yeah. event around it is good but there still needs to be some positivity around it like yeah. some hope or like entertainment's the wrong word but it needs to be something that people do want to watch yeah. rather than just like knowing that every time they watch it it's going to be heavy it's going to be something that they might not want to watch as well yeah, so, yeah it's, I guess it's, it's, it's opening up a conversation in a more natural way yeah rather than it being like you have to be in the mood to do it it's yeah, like yeah. it should just be part of a conversation and having it feel more yeah like entertaining not yeah because I said like physical health you know I see yeah. mental health going in that way in, in a way in a sense it's like we're all quite open about oh, yeah, I'm going, I went to the gym today or like, yeah. you know I'm, I want to get in shape I want to lose weight everyone yeah. talks quite openly about that now yeah but you know mental health should be more about yeah you're talking about when you're stressed talking about when you're anxious or mm. you know when you don't feel as good as maybe you make out that you are like having that safe sort of space to be yeah I think that's so powerful saying you know like when, some, when someone always says how are you it's always like I'm fine yeah and it's like oh yeah I'm doing well yeah but when really like sometimes you're not and I'm I just not. wish someone might say not bad but actually you know mm. last night and then you know open up a little bit yeah. do you think that maybe we feel by if someone if you said to me like how are you doing and I was like oh mate like and I just dumped all this stuff on you do you maybe think that we feel like it's a burden on the other person to, yeah, that's to have such a heavy conversation because they might not be in a prepared yeah. place or state I think that's the issue but I think sometimes as well is again it comes back to that when you then do that I then might feel safe to then tell you yeah yeah um, I think it's just doing it in the right way of not not relying on you as well so like if I tell you all my problems, I shouldn't then become reliant on you to yeah. solve those problems. Mm. 
which is what I struggled with in the past because whenever someone messaged me, I always tried to solve like their whole life issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But when really someone said to me a couple of months ago, which helped a lot, they were like, all you need to do is you haven't got to solve their problems. Just, you know, help them there and then. Yeah. You know, you're never going to be able to solve everything that they need yeah. solving, but just help them there and then. Mm-hmm. Or I did some training recently on um, suicide. It's a really good course. It's called Assist. It's like yeah. Suicide First Aid. Because again, I get a lot of messages when people are maybe in that place. I never know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I always now direct them to professionals you know, or Samaritans or yeah, okay. the different hotlines and hope lines that you've got. I mean, there's a lot out there, but I wanted to know what to do. And one of the biggest things that I realized is one, asking direct, which we didn't do with my dad. And we're very fearful of doing it. So if you're opening up to me, ask direct, are you feeling suicidal now? Or how, are you having suicidal thoughts? Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of people feel like they can't say. Because there's this whole thing that I'm going to plant it in your mind if I say it to you, yeah. which isn't true. Um, and secondly, getting them safe. Like again, when someone messaged me, I wanted to just make sure they never ever took their own life. Mm. But I learned that you just have to get them safe there and then. Yeah. Same with like just solve, help them there and then rather than just trying to fix everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, like you said, it's such a complicated issue. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's just all about just trying to be more open about it and yeah. and seeing how it goes. Yeah, and I think it's it's just a conversation that needs to continue, isn't it? And I think mm. I, that's how I see it. I see it as a conversation, and out of that will be the education side and the yeah. awareness and the and the the kind of understanding and and that side of stuff. But I think the conversation needs to be there first because yeah. you don't want to f- to feel like you're being sat down and it's like right we're talking about this. You want mm. it to be natural and open, right? And I guess again, I think that's probably why you've got the book that you've written, right? Is yeah. you want it to be something that people, you know, when you're reading a book, it feels not. It's not quite formal. You you pick up a book for enjoyment, and you pick up pick up a book to learn, yeah. or to you know to have those kind of feelings. Um, and yeah, I think that's you know the fact that there's a book out there covering those subjects. Yeah, I mean, the book was really all good. about just being as honest as I can, and yeah. again, just going a little bit deeper and into it and hoping that if someone reads that they might mm. relate heavily to it and feel like they can then talk about it yeah um it's quite it's quite nerve-wracking knowing that it's now out there as yeah. well because it's like yeah. it's quite honest yeah. uh, how is it structured then is it structured like your story through what you've experienced yeah, or is like, there like tips and kind of yeah you know is it broken I mean it's funny stories I I wrote it because I was going to self-publish it probably about five four or five years ago okay because I was writing little bits after dad died and then I kind of started putting it together the first chapter was like the story and then it was like nine chapters of nine realizations I've had since then it was very self-helpy and then this publisher um, they're called Trigger Press Publishing they're just a mental health based publishing company okay well yeah and books all the sales from the book fund the foundation the Sure Mind Foundation um, they reached out and said you know we want to publish maybe publish your story send us what you've got sent them the manuscript they were like yeah it's really good like the first chapter is amazing <laughs> but we want to <laughs> change the rest, the rest. <laughs> so I literally went from this nine realizations to then yeah structuring it as the accident then going back to like my childhood a little bit and okay. then following all the way down to now oh wow so it's kind of like the structure of how yeah. I dealt with it and what was good what was bad and you know a little bit about how other people dealt with it and and how was that process for you hard it was yeah. really hard there was times when I got really into it and there was times where I didn't I yeah. missed deadline by about three weeks really did um, you feel like at times you had a resistance to like exploring certain parts yeah. of it was yeah. hard to, yeah it was hard to write 
It's hard to read as well. I haven't really read it back yet. Oh, really? I read bits, but I'm very critical about it as well. I'll let you know how it is when I get my yeah. one. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, it's just it's just another, you know, again, there's no expectations with it. You know, I'm not like, oh, I hope this sells loads or... Mm. Um, that being said, it has sold out. It's sold you out already, yeah. mention that, which is incredible. Yeah, so... I mean, it's only a small print run, I believe, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of just having different ways because like you say some people want to sit down and read a book some people want to watch a video some people want to mm. listen to a podcast and I think if you can um, even traditional media so I'm doing a little bit more of traditional media now and I think just trying to hit them all at different angles mm. um, and just like you say get the conversation in as many places as possible yeah and get it started mm. and I think yeah I think the book I'm looking forward to getting my copy to be honest because I want to read it and yeah and feedback Give me a five-star review on Amazon. Yeah. Should yeah, get my uh, <laughs> get my one signed. Yeah, um, but that's so that's is available now. Available from now, Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I, I believe some Waterstones. Not I don't know. I don't know exact distribution of it. Yeah. Um, me personally, so I'm going to get some more in. Okay. So what I'm doing personally is I sold. I just got fifty in. Um, they're all sold out now, but I'm going to get probably another hundred in. But every person that buys it from me got like a personal handwritten note oh wow so I just found out a little bit about their story and then I just wrote a little handwritten note kind nice. of like called it a hope note which was a bit cheesy but it was about just if they ever do feel like down like read this note and it was mm. just it wasn't anything in particular it was just a little bit of words of encouragement and then yeah. that was tiring yeah. <laughs> like writing 50 handwritten notes it sounded yeah. a good it idea at first but it took it took forever um, but yeah it's, you, Amazon's probably the easiest place yeah. nice and then um if you could, I guess, give some advice to anyone who's, you know, not quite feeling themselves or is a little bit, you know, depressed or they are maybe having suicidal thoughts, what nuggets or what advice would you give them to kind of, you know, reach out to someone or, you know, to kind of come out of themselves mm. and stop kind of locking themselves off to people? Yeah, I think one is first, like understanding this is what I found with my dad is like when you're in that place it's that tunnel vision mm. it's like your whole perception of life closes in on you and one thing that I had to realize because at first when it happens to you um, I was like how can my dad do this to me how could my dad do this to my brother but what you then realize is people that are suicidal feel like they're a burden to everyone so my dad thought he was a burden to me my brother my mum so by him ending his life he's actually helping us Yeah. Um, so one I would just say try and remember that you're not like a burden to someone mm -hmm. Um, secondly just get it out like whether you talk to someone whether you talk on one of the hope lines or hotlines that there are there's loads out there um, whether you message someone like I find people like messaging because it's easier mm. like they might just message you or message me or message one of their friends um, or write it down like there's there's one way of getting it out there that's different for everyone but I think you just have to get it out there Yeah. Like again for me like writing down like journaling helped a lot yeah um, and again don't force it like if your wife wants you to open up but you don't feel like you can open up to your wife or your mum or someone like that don't give up there's probably someone else or a different way of getting it out there it's yeah. just about as you say getting it out there yeah like, just it's whatever it. way like you said is comfortable for you or feels suitable for you right mm -hmm. like some people like writing music some people like drawing photos or art or mm. it's just different ways of trying to express that pain mm. um, but you have to try and express it some way yeah I don't just hold it in yeah nice I've got a couple more questions um, so 
Dreamers Disease obviously named the podcast um, and, you know, the kind of online brand, as it were. Um, to me, Dreamers Disease is, it's the disease of dreaming that stops us from living happy lives because we're too busy kind of dreaming about nice. them and not taking any action on it. And, you know, that makes us quite unhappy inside. Um, but to you, and you can take your time to answer this if you want, um, what would be your definition of the Dreamers Disease? I think... The way you've explained it is probably how I would have perceived it when you first mentioned it to me. I probably I perceived it as the disease of dreaming. For me, it's like, again, this is just the way I was. I always dreamt a lot and made a lot of plans, but never executed on anything mm. of it. And I've, uh, that frustrates me with people now. So when people tell me what they want and then I'm like, go get it then. <laughs> yeah. Go do something about it. And, uh, you know, but I can't. And it's excuses, excuses, excuses. So maybe that's one thing that I'd add to that is just more lack of, like less lack of excuses. Um, so less excuses, more optimism. And as you say, I always say, I always hate saying lower the expectations. Yeah. But I think like start somewhere, like more action rather than dreaming. Yeah. And I used to just like, grab a notepad and pen and just like plan out these amazing ideas and I'd never do anything with them whereas now I'm more like I come up with an idea and I execute it whether it works or not I don't attach any goal to it yeah just get it started just get it done mm. I think that's what I would say with any dream or any goal that you've got is it just has to start yeah yeah I think that's important I think that the, the taking action I always find that the the first step's the hardest sometimes, mm -hmm. and I think once you've taken that first step and you've taken that little action, you're you've you've got the momentum. And like yeah. you said, it, it might not come of anything. It might go to like you know places you never dreamed it would have gone to. But I think you have to make that start. Otherwise, it, you'll never know, and you'll just beat yourself up about the, with the what ifs. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean. I think that's it. That's it. Then dreamers' disease is like more thinking than doing. You know, like just consistently thinking like this is what yeah. I want this is what I want and then not doing anything about it yeah and that's quite dangerous that's a dangerous trap to yeah. get it's good both putting it as well actually um, so if you could then roll back time mm -hmm. and you could go and speak to a younger Paul yeah um, so let's say you know a, a, a teenage Paul who's you know in secondary school um, and you could give yourself three bits of advice to start doing from that moment yeah and then one bit of advice to stop doing what would you say? Stop worrying what people think. So that's the stop. Yeah. <clears throat> that held me back massively. Mm. It's always worry what people thought of me. I was always acting a part of like what people would think of me. And it's just, that's the one thing that stops action. Mm. That was why I was dreaming because I was too worried what people thought yeah. of what I was doing. Um, start. Hmm. Start talking more like openly um, start spending more time with the people that I loved so again I think you take I took things for granted like I had quite a happy family life and you take that for granted yeah and then now looking at it you know I'm so grateful now that I had my dad for 18 years mm. and I had a good dad for 18 years I'm very grateful for that but I would trade anything for like one more day mm. and I think again you know s start spending more time with the people that you love because you it's so, it's so easy to get distracted again from just everything um, and 
start believing in myself. Mm. Yeah, again, I was like, I wasn't very confident. I come across as confident, but inside I wasn't very confident. Yeah, I was always second best as well. Like, honestly, like, I, I started running and I became second best in Essex at 800 meters. And then I was probably, you know, second best. Uh, you know, I was good at football, but I wasn't the best at football. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember all these girls used to do like their top five. You know, sometimes I'm in the top five, never number one. I was always like number three or something. And I was always, and I think that just, it was, I don't know, it sounds so weird, but I was never, I never really believed in myself. Yeah, yeah. And I always come like second, third, fourth. Very rare that, and when I did come first, I never actually reward, rewarded myself for yeah. it. So I did have very low self-esteem for some some reason. And mm. I think start believing in myself a lot earlier would have helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that should ring true for a lot of people because I mm. definitely did that as well. Although, I, sorry to tell you, I, I used to win school races and stuff <laughs> back in the day. Um, but in other areas, you know, I never, you know, still sometimes I fail to have that belief. Yeah, you know, as much as I'd probably like, but I don't beat was, myself up about it as well. Yeah, so, but did you find that if you won, you'd have a different emotion to when you lost? Uh, yeah, because I, I used to be very, very competitive just yeah. through like playing football and athletics and stuff. So losing was kind of, you know, it's the thing you don't want to do. You're there to yeah. win. And I think the emotions of that were kind of anger. And then you'd kind of go into the self-critical voice in your head of like, yeah. you should have done that better. Or you could have done that or you made this mistake or, you know, playing football, you let that person get past you and then they scored yeah. or whatever it was. I, I, just, I just I was never good at taking praise like mm. you know you'd win I'd, I'd win awards at football for example and then I'd never let that sink in yeah but when I didn't win the award at football I let that sink in yeah yeah but you know I, I also became through the coach that I had at the time I came became very good at taking constructive criticism yeah and using that to get better at football or you know and I wasn't ever amazing but I would improve every year yeah and I, I became very good at that but again I wasn't good at enjoying or learning from the successes but on the flip side I would beat myself up about the losses yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that's again I think that's maybe a a thing in society we we kind of think that we should be winning all the time yeah, exactly and that's just not reality it's ups yeah. and downs and everything else um never really thought about it like that it's quite interesting might have to explore that another day um <laughs> make a video make about a video it, about it. <laughs> um so to finish off uh for you what would you say is your ultimate happiness goal oh good one hmm i initially go to my family being happy but i think it's more about the bigger picture. So I say like this mental health thing isn't about me, isn't about my family. It's much bigger than that. Yeah. And I think it's, it always sounds cheesy and when I was like 18 and someone said this, I was like, yeah, you're lying, mate. You're all about the money but it is about just trying to help others mm -hmm. and I think if I can have some impact on a certain amount of people, like that would be what makes me happy and I think it's, I enjoy the process massively now. I love every day not every day but I love what I do yeah I don't feel like it's work you're, do you're doing it because you love it rather than yeah. doing it to make money or which is good as well because you start getting a bit of recognition for it yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't phase me 
because mm. I know that this is just the start and I'm like I, I still want to be you know it might change but I still want to be doing this yeah year on year out and I think but legacy is not the right word but just trying to create more of an impact than like, yeah. like you say personal goals it's not about like what I earn or what I own or who's in my life it's more about what I can do yeah. for others while still looking after myself yeah it's like the most confusing answer to that question <laughs> no it does make sense so. um, <laughs> yeah but yeah man listen thank you for coming no it's been great and um, I know today's been a busy one because it was yeah as of recording book release day book release day today um, so you know congratulations on that thank you man um, you know it's amazing that it's sold out I'm sure the next round will as well yeah I'm looking forward I to getting it's, my it's copy it's definitely going to be Amazon it should be back in stock pretty yeah, quickly. That's good, that's good. Um, so uh, on that note, can you let people know where they can find the book and where they can connect with you online? Yeah, best thing is social media, so Facebook. If you search for Paul McGregor, uh, McGregor, McGregor. Um, Instagram, pmcgregor.com. Yeah. Um, they're probably the most two active platforms, yeah. Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. And the book, yeah, Amazon's probably the easiest one to remember. Yeah. Or head onto my social media there'll be links to it there as yeah. well lovely and yeah thanks again man no, thanks you know, for me, keep man. doing everything you're doing because it's it's great to see and it's amazing it's you know we need more of it if anything so likewise, likewise. if you can clone yourself um, <laughs> and start doing it again it'd be great <laughs> yeah maybe um, that yeah, will man. come that will come thank you and yeah I'm looking forward to seeing you know how well the book does and what happens for you in the next year two years it'd and you too man amazing man good to see you so, yeah thank you so I know there was a lot of love going backwards and forwards towards the end, but I just wanted to say Alex is an amazing guy. Go check out the Dreamers Disease podcast. He's doing some really inspirational things. He's got some amazing episodes and amazing guests over on that podcast. So go check it out. I also wanted to send some your some some your some love your way as well by saying thank you for listening to this podcast all the way to the end. If you have enjoyed it in any way, please leave a rating and a review. Screenshot this episode. Let me know what you think. Share it with me on Instagram at p mcgregor com share it with me over on facebook.com forward slash p com or drop me an email at paul at p com. super simple making it easy for you guys to remember but please let me know if you listen to this and what you thought i love hearing all of your feedback and once again just a huge thank you for listening to this episode speak soon